Today, I welcome MLA for Kelowna Mission and candidate for the BC Liberal leadership, Renee Merrifield, to Coastal Front. Well-studied, Renee has an undergraduate degree, two master's degrees, with her most recent being an MBA from the University of Liverpool. And I'm curious to know whether you've been to the Cavern Club where the Beatles first performed. Absolutely. <laughs> she is founding member of the Okanagan Sustainability Leadership Council and has represented Canada at the United Nations. Renee is passionate about issues on entrepreneurship, health, and women in leadership. With several accolades to her credit, here are just a few. Women's Executive Network, Top 100 Most Powerful Women in Canada for three straight years. Ernst & Young's Pacific Region Entrepreneur of the Year Award in Real Estate in 2015. And Vancouver's Most Influential Woman in Business in 2015. When Renee isn't adding to her already impressive resume, she stands busy as a mother of five in a blended household. And now Renee is running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. On today's show, we'll discuss the environment, housing affordability, responsible spending, taxes, childcare, healthcare, opioid crisis, and cannabis. Renee, I appreciate coming in to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So before we go into those hot topics, let's let the listeners hear a little bit about yourself. Give you a couple minutes to talk about who is Renee Merrifield for those who have never heard of your name before. Absolutely. So I hail from the Okanagan. I've lived there for 25 years and really I moved there just after graduation from my first master's degree and needed a job. It was the 90s. It was a brutal time for our economy, for any of those that were there. And I, I started a business, first and foremost, consulting, which I, you know, I tried to get whatever contracts I could at the time, but started to really think about what would forming a business look like? What would I want a business to be? How would I want to influence my community? How would I want to contribute to my community? And I didn't want a, you know, a business to be there one day and gone the next. And so I formulated a business plan that was that had a, a certain amount of sustainability embedded into it and uh, and launched. I, uh, I was doing a council meeting on behalf of another uh, another business owner at the time. And uh, a gentleman approached me at the end and said, if you ever decide to go out on your own, let me know. And I said, well, can we meet for coffee? And uh, and so on a really a wing and a prayer and a great business plan, I started a company that now is 31 companies across all of Western Canada. And, you know, from my humble beginnings of not being able to even afford childcare, um, it now stands with just under 2 billion under managed assets. So I'm proud of that, wow. but I'm not proud of the numbers. I'm proud of the team. Okay. You know, the team is why I was able to step aside and to start on a whole new path. And uh, moving into politics was a jump. It felt like that. Uh, but I also believe in being part of the conversation and being part of the solution and in really moving British Columbia forward. So when the BC Liberals uh, gave me an opportunity, I jumped at it and, uh, and have applied myself over the course of the last year. Yeah, you sure have. And for those listeners who don't know, Renee, you're a fairly new MLA. I mean, you only just got elected in October of last year, of tw or, sorry, 2019, 2020. 2020. 2020 yes well I get all the dates year. the lost years with COVID I mean so Absolutely. so you you ran for um, you ran for under the BC Liberal Party got elected in in that snap election last year uh, the BC Liberal Party obviously didn't win the election Andrew Wilkinson announced he was stepping down and there was going to be a candidate race which is why you're here today this is a part of our election series 
you're now running to be the leader of the BC Liberal Party, which tells me that you're also looking to hopefully be the premier of this province. Have I got that right? You do. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, I took some time. I, I, didn't, I did not enter uh, to be an MLA and think for one second that, oh, yes, this is my chance to charge forward into leadership. In fact, I was head down, blinders on, face forward, and really hopeful that we would make a better showing than what we did. Yeah. Now, obviously, we were all isolated, and it was hard to get a read on, but when the, the results were, were out and when Andrew stepped down, then I started to look at who's in the field, who's going to step forward, who will be our next leader. And I was, I was quite excited about that. I was looking forward to seeing who they are. And, uh, and, and what was happening was like, we do not have a leader on the slate. We don't have anyone that understands how to take something from nothing and make it into something great. We have no one who understands how to pivot an organization. We have no one who understands how to change an organization. We have no one who understands how to actually move something forward and evolve it forward. And so for me, it was a, a little bit of a desperate we need at least one person who can bring that level of conversation and do so in a way that's understanding of the difficulties that uh, you know business owners face, that women face, that uh, that those within our communities are, are up against right now. So it was a jump in and get involved. Okay, good. Well, you helped answer one of my uh, early questions I'm going to ask, which is the shortcomings you see within the BC Liberal Party. You just laid that out. You also just highlighted women. Now, you're the only woman to be running for this. Now, we also know that Christy Clark was uh, BC's, I believe, first elected, or maybe even the only premier. So first elected. Yeah. First elected. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we do have a long history of women leading the BC Liberal Party with Christy Clark. But you're the only run, one, one only woman running today. How should um, listeners watching this read into that? Is that something we should be considering or thinking about? Or what is your view on that as the only woman? I think it does give me somewhat of an edge. Uh, 65% of voting uh, women did not vote for the BC Liberals in the last election. Really? I think we need to pay attention to that. 75% uh, of, of federal Liberals, voting federal Liberals, did not vote for the BC Liberals in the last election. We need to pay attention to that. Uh, and you, you, know, you drew attention to um, Premier Clark, and while she was uh, leading our province, we did have the most diversity that we've ever had in terms of positions of leadership, as well as caucus, as well as uh, throughout the organization, that has, we've, we've taken some steps backwards, absolutely. And I think it's important for us to move forward. I think also as a female, I bring a different perspective. You know, we look at things a little bit more holistically, a little bit more uh, complex. Uh, it, you know, we have a different perspective on how to move things forward and how to lead things forward. We also understand the interconnectedness of different aspects of our society in a better way, I think, than than some are, are taught to do. Now, as far as your challenges are concerned going into this leadership race, what do you kind of see your biggest challenge being? I would say name recognition, obviously. I think that that's a huge one. Um, and I think that the second challenge is COVID. <laughs> you know, we um, normally would be you know, hosting big campaigns, our buses would be traveling all over the province, and we have had one setback after another after another. And just in terms of trying to get messaging out and trying to get words out and trying to get eyeballs, you know, meeting people and, and really hearing from them uh, and, and reconnecting with that grassroots level. Okay. All right. That's good. Well, this is the platform to get that message <laughs> yes. out. And so on that note, we're going to now jump to our, our question period. Let me start with the environment and infrastructure. 
Now, we move this to the front of our list of questions because we're in later part of like near the end of, of 2021. We've had these massive floods happening, more rain today, um, at, at atmospheric rivers. Um, so over the last two weeks, we've seen areas of the Fraser Valley completely submerged. People have lost their homes and some livelihoods. With raging fires and several heat domes in the summer and now flooding, are we in a climate emergency? Oh, that's a good question. And, and I was with you right until the end when you said, are we in a climate emergency? Um, well, it's pretty easy, I, I, I yes think, or no question, <laughs> <yeah>. right? <laughs> and so I would, say, I would say a cautious yes. Okay. I think that if we don't pay attention, we will be in a very loud yes. So I, I think that, the, that the, the shake right now that I'm feeling is the layering effect of each of these emergencies on top of one another. And yes, the heat domes was one, and then the fires that raged. Uh, and you know, you can see a cause and effect. Lytton was the highest uh, in terms of centigrade one day, and you know, the next week had been completely obliterated by fire mm -hmm. and and devastated. The, the the pictures and the and the images are just haunting. And there was life lost in both of those, right? I mean, six just under six hundred people uh, with the heat dome, another two with the fires. That's that's something for us as British Columbians to, to pay attention to, to grieve. Mm -hmm. Something we're doing is not right. And then the floods, yes, another loss of life and loss of you know, our, our economy. We have, uh, our logistics are basically on their knees right now trying to figure out how we're going to get through. But so is our healthcare system, which all of a sudden we're having to shift around how people are getting care. And there is a, a cautionary tale in terms of people getting the help that they require and that they need without roads yeah. that they're able to travel on. Yeah. So I do think that it's time for us to pay attention and really pay attention. And for too long, we've had this either or conversation. It has to be the economy or the environment. And you know, I, I hearken back to my early days on learning about sustainability, and it was always the four pillars. It was always about, yes, the environment, yes, the economy, but also culture, also social. And without all four of those really working together, almost wheels within wheels within wheels, we will have an emergency, not just climate emergency, but in a, a, a society emergency. And, and we just do not understand how to get all of those four working together. And I believe that government has a huge role in how it interrupts those systems or keeps those systems siloed so that they're not interconnected and they're right. not talking to one another in a very thoughtful way. So that's, that's neat that you've highlighted how those four have to work together. Um, but let's, uh, to stay focused on the environment, um, you mentioned that you see us as having a cautionary yes is your answer for uh, a climate emergency. Under your leadership, what would, um, what would your climate uh, leadership look like? If you were the head of the BC Liberal Party, potentially premier of the province, what would climate leadership look like for you? Well, I think it's similar. Uh, I, I, I hope that it would be similar, whether it was the leader of the BC Liberals or the Premier. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll say that. I think we need to put a lens of, 
of each of those four onto everything that we do. Okay. Whether it's a bill on freedom of information, and you saw us do that in the House with bringing attention to the fact of the wildfires. Why would wildfire information not be fully transparent and released preemptively? Right. Um, we need to talk point. through every single piece of legislature that come, legislation that comes forward with those four lenses. How does this affect our economy? How does this affect our environment? How does this affect our cultural aspects of our society? And how does this affect us socially? Mm -hmm. And if we can't actually answer those questions, the bill shouldn't be going forward. Right. We should have a comprehensive deep dive look on that. And as opposition, we can be hammering government on those four points. And as premier, you put that in all of your ministers' charges and have them work together. Mm -hmm. There should be a collective sustainability council that is even, you know, uh, bipartisan, have all of the parties there uh, sitting at the table with those lenses debating how that bill will actually affect. Right, right. Okay, well, that sounds really good in spirit and, and, and <laughs> philosophically. Have whether, faith. Yeah, yeah. Have faith. <laughs> well, let's, uh, I want to talk about something that uh, the BC Green Party has been uh, talking about a lot recently, which is the rate of old growth logging. So the BC Liberals uh, significantly increased the rate of old growth logging in the BC interior during their time in government. The NDP have announced their intention to defer harvest of ancient, rare, and priority large stands of old growth within 2.6 million hectares of BC's most at-risk old growth forests. What are your ideas on protecting old growth in British Columbia? Well, I think we have to expand the conversation beyond old growth and, and really look at our whole forestry sector. We had two bills that came in in the fall. One of them never even made it to committee stage, so we didn't really get to do that deep, conscientious dive on what it actually meant, and it was like an 80-page bill. Uh, absolutely brutal way to govern, um, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is that what that belies is just a, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of a bigger issue, which is we have not actually imagined our forestry sector in the way that it should be. So we have, you know, differing even definitions of old growth forests and what, what it means. And part of the task force was to create that definition and, and, and come forward with that definition. But that's only part of the story. We need all of the parties at the table, whether it's the environmentalists, whether it's industry, whether it's our indigenous partners, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, some of our social group. We need everyone sitting at the table to then say, how do we move forward comprehensively? How do we imagine all of forestry? Look, our indigenous partners, they need environmental and economic sustainability. Our business sector and our industry, they need certainty. And right now, we're not giving anything to anyone. And you want to talk about bad bills coming forward. <laughs> well, you've got the First Nations against these bills. You've got industry against these bills. You've got our workers against these bills. You've got communities up in arms saying, what does this actually mean? So the Who's old... in favor of these bills other than the NDP? <laughs> other than the NDP. The, and I would say the environmentalists, except even the environmentalists aren't. They've said, no, you haven't gone far enough. So nobody is content with this. And it's not because they haven't, um, you know, everyone's moderately pleased. It's because nobody had seen it before it actually came to the floor. That's not how you introduce a bill of that order of magnitude, which right. could threaten 18,000 jobs and literally you know, we could have our, some of our cities gone. Right. Um, and it's an impact across BC. You know, it's it's the north, it's the interior, it's, it's yeah, here in the lower point. mainland, it's on the island. So this is something that has sent shockwaves through. And uh, and really, it's it's because it's bad governance. 
proper governance would have all those voices at the table. Yeah. Proper governments would have had that bill come out in the spring and said, we're going to consult all the way through the summer. We're going to get everyone ready and prepared for this. And then let's really do a deep dive starting fresh in the, in the fall session to make sure that we do right. this right. Does forestry need reinvention? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can it be done properly? Absolutely. And can it be done with that and conversation? Mm -hmm. Environment The four pillars. And, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. Yeah. Absolutely can be. Okay, great answer. Let's switch to infrastructure before we go on to our next topic. The Massey Tunnel is now 62 years old and in need of a major faceless lift or replacement. The provincial government will not commit a figure amount to this project. Of course, there's this <laughs> constant debate that's gone on between the NDP who have advocated for another tunnel and the BC Liberal. And I almost I almost think they've chosen the tunnel just because the BC Liberals chose a <laughs> chose a bridge <laughs> for another reason. A government um, do something out of yeah. spite. <laughs> so, um, in your uh, in your view, like if you if you were to have some major influence over this, how would you go about getting this problem fixed? Because um, I'm sure if you've driven through that tunnel during rush hour, it's a mess. It's a mess, and transportation affects our life affordability, our cost of living. Uh, you take you know, someone who has to wait in traffic for an hour and a half while they go to and from you know, their job, that is a, that's three hours of, of, of non-productive time mm -hmm. in their day. It's you know, even waiting for transit, uh, you know, a, a bus that doesn't come, a train that's late, you mm -hmm. know, missing that last train out of yeah. the downtown core at 6 p.m., well, now you're, you're out of luck. So I do think that transportation has to be looked at very differently as, an, as a function of affordability. And should we be doing another tunnel that really doesn't increase the overall uh, capacity? Absolutely not. That is, from a transportation network idea, is probably the worst thing that you could possibly do. At least with a bridge, you can expand it. You can, you can, you can layer it. You can redo it without having to impact our environment yet again. A tunnel, it's set, it's fixed, which is where we are today, right. which is why we have such a, a horrible knothole in that particular area. But the other aspect is all the environmental is done on having a bridge. We could, you know, green light go. And I would say that if the numbers actually came out and weren't just a blacked piece of page or a blacked out piece of, uh, of paper, we would actually see that the, the bridge would cost way less money than, than doing another tunnel, but not gain us any further uh, transportation network. Okay. So Renee, um, I also want to speak with you briefly about both Site C Dam and LNG in British Columbia. So let's start with Site C. <laughs> let's do Are it. you in favor of it? You're glad we're continuing? Are you glad that the BC NDP government continue to move along with getting this thing built? Or do we need it? Is it worth the money that's being spent? What's your thoughts on Site C Dam? Oh, those are all such different uh, uh, questions, but I'll go to this. I am in favor of Site C. Yeah. I wish that it had been done differently. Okay. I, uh, I think that the NDP, uh, they acknowledged that it was on time and on budget after their year-long investigation, but that year-long investigation absolutely robbed us of the contingency fund that was in place for any incidentals that would, or overruns. So what we now have is a project that is through the roof in costs. The contingency was not actually absorbed because of uh, of having issues on the site, but was absorbed because of the time frame it took the NDP right. to actually do their due diligence. So I, one year review really offset off like this 
tailspin of uh, added costs. Absolutely. Interesting. The other aspect is that we introduced uh, the, the community benefits. And community benefits uh, absolutely increased the cost by 30 to 40 percent. So we had an increase of cost there. We had the, the lack of the contingency. And then, yes, there were geotechnical issues. But I don't think it was the geotechnical issues. I, I would actually go to the lack of transparency. They hid those geotechnical issues for almost 18 months after right. they had been reported. We were hearing in the private sector, even before I was an MLA, about some of those issues that were going on at Site C without any acknowledgement from government. That costs money. Time is money. And if you don't deal with issues effectively, if you don't deal with issues efficiently, and if you have leadership in place that is not dealing with those issues transparently, you have costs that are going to run way over. Those are all really good points. What are your views on the LNG industry and expand and building out an LNG platform, I guess, would be up in the Kitimat area. And this Do you favor is, it? I am. Uh, this is something that I have done uh, some research on uh, in, in my private sector life and actually talked to you know some experts. Uh, so I've talked to experts uh, in the field. And LNG is an important step in us getting to fully green uh, renewable resources. And it's an important step for us. It's also an important step for the rest of the world. And I know that uh, our energy needs are going to be going up. And yes, we could just you know continue to export coal as we do, BC's little dirty secret. Uh, you know, our, we could continue to export our coal, or we could export LNG and actually try to uh, shift the dependency on some of the uh, on some of the uh, less environmentally friendly um, uh, energy sources. It's a good point. I often find it. I mean, I'm I'm very environmentally conscious myself, but I'm also a realist, and I always find it a bit odd how. Uh, how upset certain environmental stewards uh, or environmentalists get over building out an LNG project or program, but they don't even make mention to coal because they don't think they even realize it. They don't even realize how much oil is uh, exported off our shores through the current pipeline uh, or the coal that we export. I mean, if you just, you don't have to go very far. Just go to the Tawasin Ferry Terminal. You'll see the massive pile there. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's just like, they get so upset about LNG and this new modern, way more like way more environmentally friendly form of yeah. fossil fuel use, but you barely hear them talk about this pile of black coal sitting on the Roberts Banks there. Absolutely, isn't it funny? And it is. Why and do you think that is? It's what they focus on, right? And they become the narrative. And is it because they don't know it's there, or is uh, just... they have to know? I yeah. have to believe that they know. But I think also it it becomes you know we've we've for too long. Canada and especially BC have allowed our narrative to be determined from outside of us. You know, we have a lot to be proud of within our energy sector in terms of how our technology is some of the greenest in the world, but also uh, things like our our human rights aspect and how we treat all of our workers and how we actually move things throughout our province and our attention on on constantly innovating into more and more green uh, energy. So, you know, there are so many stories that we should be insanely proud of, and yet we allow that to be robbed. Mm-hmm. by you know some aerial photographs and 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 a narrative that really isn't whole it's not the, the yeah. whole story so i am i'm a big believer in in lng and i also though just believe it's a step 
You know, I think we need right. to be always pressing the boundaries and marrying our institutions and our innovators along with our industry and, and consistently trying to find greener and greener ways to deliver energy to the world. All right, Renee, those are really good answers for the environment infrastructure. Now we're going to jump to housing affordability. Let's start by asking about your definition of what is affordability in your mind and what does it mean to the average voter? So, uh, you know, I have built houses for the last 25 years, but I actually have made it my life's work to try and consistently create more and more affordable choices. So when I look at affordability, I look at what can an average wage earner within our community afford at the appropriate life stage that they are in. Now, that doesn't mean that my 24-year-old kids are going to be able to afford, you know, the same home that they grew up in right away, right? But I also coming out of university lived in a 360 square foot apartment while I was, you know, pregnant and starting my first company. So, there are some things that I think we need to adjust in terms of what we what we see our needs truly are. Um, but having said that, the housing affordability has skyrocketed. If you look at any of the metrics that we measure by, whether it's 30% of your mm -hmm. income, whether it's how many times your annualized wage it should, it should be, we are so outside of the box that Absolutely. we can't even see the box anymore. And that's largely, I mean, our statistics show that. We have the lowest housing per capita in all of the G7. We have less houses for our population than the UK does. So you think about that, of course we have a supply issue. And it's, yeah, of that's a really good point. Do. And they have way less land than we do. Way less land. So on that note then, and being that this is your background as real estate, do you believe this is a simple supply demand issue? Like if we just increase the amount of supply of housing in the province and the Metro Vancouver area that it would make solve the problem? I think reduced to its 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 most simplistic form, yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If we increase supply, you will see there being more options at less at less costly uh, measures. Having said that, the reason that we don't have supply, I think, is really important to look at. How the layering effect of each of the government uh, you know, bureaucracies have affected have affected housing, uh, the amount of time it takes to get to market, how many different approvals have to be in place. And I'm not just talking about municipal approvals. Right. You might have to get a letter from the Ministry of Transportation or you might have to get a letter from you know, the ALR. There are so many layered effects mm -hmm. on our housing. Um, and then that time costs money, mm -hmm. right? There's, a, there's, a, there's a, an added cost that gets downloaded then to the consumer. But then there's fees. <laughs> and if you look at the fees, we're looking at anywhere between 20 and 50% at certain points of the overall land value mm -hmm. could be attributed just to the fees that are, are, are layered on by government. So if we actually looked at those two aspects, a, you know, a fast track system uh, that we could get, you know, actual product to market and land to market and uh, the fees uh, and, and lowering the fees and capping them at a certain rate. Right. And then... What, well, what's government's role in that? Well, the province has to work with municipalities because why do municipalities charge those exorbitant fees? Because that's how they pay for things, right? They have two different means or mechanisms of, of taxation. One of those is through property taxes and the other is through development cost charges, CACs and, mm -hmm. and all the other fees that they can, they can layer on. But ultimately, we all pay for it yeah. because you can't put a fee onto a new house without putting it onto an old house. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. 
Um, in my former life, we had towers, like four different towers that were going up in the Okanagan. In two of them, they were you know, subjected to a certain amount of development cost charges. And the bylaw changed as we were moving into the next two, adding $7,600 to every single unit for a new parks DCC. Wow. So now we were paying $15,000 just for parks on that on these new buildings each unit each unit yeah. every single one didn't matter if it was 400 square feet or 2000 square feet every single unit paid now do you think that the other two towers that were taken occupancy a year earlier were all of a sudden less valuable than the new ones that were now being charged that $7600 no they all got a $7600 equity bump yeah, the minute sure. that that bylaw came in yeah and they actually didn't pay it to the city Right. So there is a huge... It's a, such a great example of how <laughs> government policy has all these unintended consequences. Exactly. And, 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 and unintended consequences is a great way to put it. As we have continually layered on costs onto new development, the old developments or the resale product has gotten that same equity bump, which makes it less affordable for mm-hmm. all British Columbians, regardless of where they live. So to summarize, you're to big criticisms of the affordability issue in our cities and our province. One is how long it's taking builders, whether they're big builders or small builders, to be able to just get their projects done because of the multiple levels of bureaucracy at the local level and the provincial level, combined with these extra fees. Well, those are just two. Then you look at (laughs) (laughs) then you look at because it is a it is a very complex thing. But yes, how long it takes to get zoning, how long it takes to get a development permit, how long it takes to get a building permit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you pull those all three together. You could be talking about 10 years in Vancouver. Absolutely. You could be talking about 14 years in some places. Some places have shut down development altogether and said, no, we're not going to do any development. Yeah, we've been we've been talking to lots of developers. I can't get them on on the show because they don't want to be on record. But I talked to no. Because they don't want to shoot their chances of getting their latest project developed. But yeah. a lot of them have told us that they just simply won't build in Vancouver anymore. Yeah. They'll build in North Vancouver. They'll build in Burnaby. But they will not build in, in Vancouver proper because of what you just said. Yeah. A project that's a low-rise, you know, four- to six-story, all-rental apartment building in the Canby Corridor, which might have taken a decade ago, four or five years to build, is now taking nine to ten years yeah. to build. Well, and you're totally right. It's uh, it, it's they're absolutely um, adding and adding and adding mm-hmm. complexity. And the issue is that a project taking ten years is probably going to go through eight different planners, you know, five different governments, uh, like, right. and all of those government changes come in with new mandates, new, you know, new. And when cost of capital is really cheap, maybe it's not such an issue. But now that we have rising interest rates and mortgage rates are going higher, this is just going to become more costly, yeah. all passed on to the consumer themselves. Absolutely. Um, now, a lot of these issues, because it's a topic I know quite well as well. So a lot of these issues do like go down to the municipal level. And we did ask this question to your other uh, um, peers that are competing for the same role. So my question to you is, as the head of the BC Liberal Party and being in a provincial position, how would you get these municipal governments like Vancouver to kind of smarten up? What would you do? Because it's kind of out of your jurisdiction. What would you do to help? Because that's where a lot of the developers tell us their biggest issue isn't the province. Maybe the archaeological branch, for example, is an issue. But there is a lot of it is at the municipal level. So how would you as the head of the BC Liberal Party try and fix that? 
Well, there's a, I think there's a lot of interconnectedness. And I think that the province actually plays a bigger role than what they have in the past. And the reason that they haven't is largely because they've downloaded a lot of responsibility and a lot of the costs to municipalities. So you, I don't believe you can give one without giving the other. But I do think that as a provincial government, we can ask for outcomes. And outcomes that say, you can only take this long with an application. And once it's through that part, then you have to let it go. You have to have this much staffing and appropriately staffed. You have to have this many housing starts, not approvals, but this many housing starts through your system every single year because we know what the population growth is. Yeah, like sure. within the city of Surrey, we know 1,500 people are arriving every single month. If we were going to put that into a, how many housing starts do you need to need to have? Well, probably about a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're, you're still catching up. Yeah. So we need to set those expectations and those outcomes and then come forward with what they need. You know, UBCM has been asking for many years about certainty for large municipal, large infrastructure projects. Give them that certainty, but say, in order to get this, you need to also come forward with this for our housing sector. Yeah. And almost, you know, it's a carrot, not a stick. It's, a, it's an agreement and a partnership as to how you move forward. The other aspect that I think has not been well done is regionally planning. Okay. And if you regionally plan and look at where everything is going to be, because the, the transportation needs to be regionally done, the uh, housing needs to be regionally done, education needs to be, like we need regional plans. And to have this siloed effect of all of the different planning exercises that are done within the cities, I think is, is not going to work long term and we're seeing the negative effects of it okay so let, let me ask you some very pointed questions one is about offshore money and the second is about um, foreign ownership they're kind of tied a little bit so first question is how big of an impact do you believe offshore money has had on the affordability crisis particularly in the lower mainland uh, so statistics would show it's about three to four percent of the overall real estate market specific to the lower mainland. Okay. That's a very low percentage. Okay. And if we pulled out what those what those unit types are, you would find that it's going to skew more to a higher end product right. yeah. than competing on the open market for yeah. condominium. Lower middle product. class foreigners don't come to Canada and buy houses. No. no. Okay. So, so you don't see the foreign the foreign investors that have been buying houses in Vancouver and the lower mainland being a material factor in housing affordability. They have made headlines, but usually because it's a $12 million home. Right, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. You don't see where yeah. it's a condominium yeah. you know, in Burnaby. So, so on that note then, would you, would you adopt, uh, maybe you've already answered this question, would you adopt the New Zealand model where most foreign ownership is simply banned from acquiring real estate? Justin Trudeau talked about he's going to do this now, ban ownership of, of foreign ownership of real estate in, in Canada or yeah. BC? I wouldn't. I think that our foreign buyers tax does effectually the same. It, uh, if you look at the different markets who have, who have put a foreign buyer's tax and who hasn't, Toronto and Vancouver or Lower Mainland have both put in, or BC, has put in a foreign buyer's tax. Our markets saw an immediate decline mm -hmm. in those markets. Montreal went skyrocketing. It did. I you know. know. It's amazing, so isn't it? It truly is. Yeah. So I think that we've already had that down. So would you get rid of the foreign, foreign home buyer's tax? No, I wouldn't get rid of it. Would them. you do, reduce it? 
I, I, I'm quite content where it is in yeah. terms of the 20% at this point. What I would provide for are exemptions. Mm -hmm. So where you have a professor that's being recruited yeah, for one of our exactly. institutions or where you have a workforce that's coming in from a certain area that is, is direly needed in a skilled workforce, I would I would create exemptions for those people that are coming in directly. Yeah. But to keep it, you know, as a dampening effect and to make sure that those monies are going back into yeah. creating housing affordability, absolutely sure. I think it's positive. Well, to your earlier comment, and I told David Eby this recently, um, I said to him, look, you know, this foreign home buyers tax has unintended con uh, consequences. One of them being, if you think about the $12 million mansions that are in West Vancouver and West Side Vancouver, why not let foreign buyers buy them? I mean, why not let all the rich people out there just play a game of musical chairs, move these ownership from one to another, and every time they sell, you collect property transfer tax. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, right, from a mathematical standpoint, if, if you get more speculation on the highest end of the market, I said, why don't you just make the foreign homebuyers tax like something that people can still stomach and make movement, like actually create speculation with anything above five million bucks, because even a five million dollar house that goes from five million to eight and then down to two, it's still not affordable for anybody other than a bunch of rich people. Let them pay all the taxes in the world by moving this around in a game of musical chairs. Yeah, well, you know, I like the musical chairs aspect, but I probably wouldn't recommend that. Um, not because I don't think it's maybe a huge grab, but I just think it's too small of the market. Right. I just don't think it would have the necessary effect. And if you look at the cost of that tax mm -hmm. and looked at the cost of actually managing that tax, like what's the threshold and how much and where and yeah. it would the for the dollars that we would get, it probably would cost us more to actually manage right. that. But having said that, what I what I believe and where we should go with that is 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 decreasing the cost of housing and housing and, and increasing housing affordability. And the NDP have no intention of doing that. You right. know, you talk about the 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 cash that's coming in, the revenues that are coming in on property transfer tax. You look at the three year projection of the NDP government, it's going up which means housing affordability is not on their radar whatsoever, right. uh, which is scary, yeah. right? They do not have a plan to fix it. Yeah. And there are, I mean, I've given you a, a very small fraction of what I would see as a, as, a, as a holistic housing plan and how we actually tackle housing affordability once and for all. Right. And I won't release all of it though until yeah. 2024, but I have had it costed out by some university professors just to prove that I had it ready, ready nice. to go for okay. right now. Good. But there are some other elements that I'm borrowing from other jurisdictions that actually uh, uh, springboard people into the market and give us a, a, a housing affordability well, without you, relying on government and the government 20-year hangover when all of those products actually need renovation. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, let's put a rain check on that topic. We can love do a it. whole podcast on it um, You know, after this leadership election's over and, you, and, you, and you've won the, uh, the, the leadership race. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Okay, let's jump to responsible spending. It's a topic that's really important to me. You asked me earlier why I do this. I do it because I want to make government at all three levels accountable for their spending and I want to force them to be more transparent. Um, first of all, where is the current BC NDP government on uh, with, their, with respect to spending? Are they being responsible with their spending? No, they are not. Uh, it has been eye-opening over the course of the last year to learn and to see all of the ways that money is being spent without getting anything for the British Columbian taxpayer for it. It's, uh, it's absolutely shocking. 
is the easiest way to put it. And I wish that there were 20 of you out there holding government to account. And, you know, honestly, we should never be afraid of being held to account as government. We should actually welcome it. Uh, and right now that is not being done. There is more and more secrecy, more and more layers to the bureaucracy. We're seeing the government bloat, absolutely take off. I'm getting the, you well, know. Let's, I, mean, I have another question for you on please. that topic and you great segue. I ran some research recently because the BC, uh, BC NDP government were touting the fact that uh, uh, the unemployment rate in BC has been going down and, and that yeah. we were one of the best performing provinces in the country. And then I went into the StatsCan data and I saw that, and I, look, I'm from Victoria. I went to high school there and university. Oh. So I, I, I know that town well, yeah. love the town. My whole, my whole family is there. But I also know Vancouver really well. I'm like, this is the epicenter of the, pro it's like, we're like the uh, Toronto equivalent, but for the province, we, yeah. this is the epicenter of where all the jobs are, okay? There's some great entrepreneurs in Victoria, but look, this is the place where the jobs are generally being created. Yet Victoria has a lower unemployment rate than Vancouver. And you gotta ask yourself why. So I started running the math. And we actually reached out to the province and said, okay, how many new public service jobs have been created by the provincial government since the beginning of 2020? And I don't remember the number it was, but I think it was like in the 40 to 60,000 range. Like it was a crazy number. Yeah, I think and it's I, about 48,000. And, 40, and but by 2017, that number is actually over the 100,000 mark. Yeah, 20, 2017? Since 2017. Since 2017, yeah. that number right. is over 100,000. Yeah, so yeah, and so I ran the math and I was like, well, this, this kind of skews the unemployment rate by just creating more government jobs. Yeah. Um, so as far as the... BC public service payroll, would you support an audit of, of that activity? Absolutely. We okay. need a full core review. Absolutely. We need to, we need to dig, we need to look at what everyone's doing and what the job is and what are the outcomes? What are the deliverables? Right. Like in business, you don't add, you don't add to your headcount without understanding exactly what they're going to be doing and how they're going to be contributing to the overall outcomes of, of your productivity. Right now, I do not see that. They're not adding more frontline. They're not adding more people on the ground. They're not adding those that actually influence, which is why we're not getting better service when we so go So where are these the jobs ER. being created They're then? All on the executive level. They're all in the in the management levels. They're the, it is truly the biggest, I mean, bloat is the best word I can say. Right. I can say like I, I, there is, there are more executive roles that are being created than I, I would, I would argue than ever before. The problem with this too is that um, it's very costly once you've hired on, you know, government bureaucrats because they're generally a lot of them are union jobs, and they're, so they're like great deal of job protection. And then to get the, to cut make cuts there um, is very costly. You know, and there's also yeah. pensions that are you know pension obligations that come later on. Okay. Would the BC Liberals get back to balancing the budget, or is generational debt a new reality for us? I think we have to eventually get back there. I think that um, no government can, can survive uh, by just taking on more and more and more debt. Having said that, there is a certain amount of debt that 
it's like you know in business are you are you going into debt for things that are going to make you money later on or are you going to debt into debt operationally we just talked about the number of jobs that the NDP have increased the government spend by that's 10 billion dollars a year that we're not getting anything more for right so that is bad debt to take on that is that is debt that you don't want whereas if you're taking on debt for a road for a bridge for you know to get uh, for a rail line to actually get goods to market to get you know people to where they need to be that type of debt is actually stimulating your economic growth which ends up making you money so it's right. what are you spending on and why yeah. and this government doesn't seem to get that at all and in fact criticized the last government bc liberals for what it was doing along those lines. We were spending to increase the amount of infrastructure because if we don't keep people healthy in hospitals, we're not gonna have our, a, a labor force that's ready and available for you know for our economy. So if right. you look at, again, if we go back to those wheels of interconnectivity, you need a strong economy to have strong social systems, to make sure that culturally you're, you're firing on all the cylinders and rel relevant, to make sure you're taking care of your environment, which then takes care of your economy. Yeah, it's, you know? it's all it's all a connected circle. It's a really absolutely. good point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on this similar theme of responsible spending, let's spend a minute talking about taxes. Um, we need significant policy changes if we want to attract new tech companies and encourage entrepreneurship. Currently, the business tax jumps from two percent to twelve percent once a company's revenues, not profits, revenues reach five hundred thousand dollars a year. What are your ideas on creating more investment in BC in the tech sector and by entrepreneurs? Well, right now we're telling all of our entrepreneurs, all of our innovators, all of our tech sector, we're closed for business. We really don't want you here. You're talking about a highly mobile uh, group of individuals who can go anywhere to start their companies. But my fear is that it's not, it, it doesn't just end there with the taxation that they've had. It, you know, I was talking with a manufacturing company this summer that's based in Vancouver, thousand jobs, and they're moving. They're moving to Alberta. And when I was, you know, went out to meet with the business owners and convinced them to stay, you know, they just said, we're dying of death of a thousand cuts and each one right. gets deeper. We cannot afford to lose those manufacturing jobs any more than we can afford to lose those tech jobs or those jobs that our, our young entrepreneurs are actually bringing forward or old entrepreneurs yeah. <laughs> not age I'm not yeah. ageist um, so I I think we need a whole different environment for a business to live in and uh, and that requires government getting out of the way less bureaucracy less taxation and really stimulating them and then putting in place what they need to get their goods to market putting in place what they need to make sure that they're uh, they're operating at a cost environment that allows them to reinvest that allows them to employ people that allows them to to grow their businesses and right now it's it's just not there okay well one of those that's a good answer one of those items Renee is the uh, uh, the MSP premiums that were scrapped by the BCNDP in exchange for the employer health tax if you were in a role as premier of this province leader of the BC Liberal Party would you um, bring back the the uh, MSP premiums and get rid of the employer health tax. So I, I I would, but I would do it differently. Okay. So I think that MSP should be uh, means tested. I think that there should always be uh, health care offered to those at the you know at, who are in the lower socioeconomic for free. 
I do not believe that it should be ever an impediment. Having spent some time in the US, I've seen people go bankrupt because of trying to, to provide for their health needs of their families. I do not believe that should ever be the case. But having said that, it did not get scrapped. It just got downloaded and then increased to the business sector, which right. then the business sector doesn't, you know, we don't have, you know, they don't have money just falling off trees that they can pay that with. It has to come from twofold. One, it comes from the, you know, the wages and, and the benefits that they're able to give to their employees, or it goes to the, to the consumer of the goods, which then, if we talk all the way full circle, leads to a lack of affordability and an increased cost of living well, for all British Columbians. To be a devil's advocate, can you also argue that it could also come out of just the profits of those businesses? I wish I could, but most of those businesses, you're looking at 2% on their overall uh, uh, cost of employees. Most cost of employees are going to be in that higher percentage. You know, a, a service you know provider is going to be up in the 60% will be just based on employees. You increase that by 2%, yeah. even if they make 10% profit on an annual basis, that comes they're no longer viable at yeah. some point. Uh, so I don't think it just comes out of profits. That argument is actually from not understanding how a business runs or not understanding that businesses are for profit, yeah. not, not sure. for profits, which means they have to have profits in order to invest, in order to expand, in order to have those dollars next. And we need them to be profitable or we don't get their taxation. Yeah. So if, if they just operate at zero profit every single year and that's just given to employees yeah. you know, through an EHT, well, we don't, we don't get their taxation. Yeah. Last item on taxes, what tax reforms would you change or create if you were the uh, leader of the BC Liberal Party Premier of the province? Well, I think that taxation is a great way to actually incent where we want to see growth where we see industry going, where we would like to um, move things forward. And one of the things that I've looked at in terms of an economy is how prevalent your entrepreneurs are. Entrepreneurs, number one, in terms of building resiliency, building recovery, and making sure that you have uh, innovation. And if we're serious as, as British Columbians about being that world global leader, we need to incent those entrepreneurs to be here, stay here, and risk. It is a huge risk as an entrepreneur that you're taking and, and investing everything you have, sometimes everything that your friends and family have, to make sure that you're you're starting this company and bootstrapping it. And, and so I think that that's a great way to put some tax incentives or tax reform in. Where would where else would I? I think that our whole our whole personal taxation uh, has to be changed. You know, there's great studies out of the University of Calgary that show exactly where that threshold is, where you can tax and where you get the benefit of the tax, and where if you go above it, those people either leave or they they create their own strategies around it. I think we need to optimize taxation to make sure that we're benefiting the most that we can as British Columbians, but that we're not actually scaring people away or scaring businesses away. And right now we've superseded that. We've gone above that that threshold at this right. point and we've become less competitive as a result. But you know, we saw in the film industry how we incented films to come here and gave tax credits for what they were paying in labor and employing our local resources. And look at what that's done in terms of, of actually increasing that sector I think taxation is a great way for a provincial and federal government to really look at where do we want to see growth? Let's make sure it happens and let's make sure that we do this right. 
The other thing is we're competing around the world with that happening already. Yeah. You know, that's why forestry companies are going down south. That's why we're seeing, you know, some of our, our tech sector go in other places because they're being incented to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we want to be competitive, we have to look at what they're doing and and hopefully do the same. I believe that having met with many um, leaders in the business community that you don't have to be the most tax competitive environment to keep these businesses. You just have to be fair. Yeah. You know, like I, I've never met any of these CEOs who say, well, if we're not in the lowest tax jurisdiction, we're moving our business. It's more like, I just don't want to be paying more than absolutely everybody else by like a country mile. Yeah, and and as ahead. you said earlier, you know, I think that as a business owner, I was always happy when I paid taxes because it meant like I'm profitable. Yeah. But when I'm paying taxes and I'm not seeing the same reciprocation from my government or see, seeing the same level of investment in what I need to uh, to continue growth, etc., I think that's yeah. also a huge a huge factor when it comes to business uh, retention. Okay, we're gonna jump to childcare, Renee. Oh, okay, let's do it. You've got five children I in do. their twenties. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so childcare is a big focus for BC and fellow candidate of yours, Gavin Dew. Uh, his wife, I think, runs a a, a, a childcare center. So he's, she does. Erin yeah. is fierce. I love yeah. her. <laughs> <laughs> so together, the province and the federal governments have announced plans to work together to achieve ten dollar per day childcare before twenty twenty seven. So I have two questions here. One is, is this achievable or are politicians selling a pipe dream? And number two, under your leadership, how would the BC Liberals do things differently? So your first uh, question is, is it achievable? And yes, of, I believe 100% it is achievable, especially because the federal government is coming in with help as well. It would be very difficult for a provincial government to do it on their own. And we saw that with Quebec. It was very difficult for them to actually achieve their $10 a day daycare. I would also argue they haven't. As much as they claim to have done that in terms of universal daycare, they haven't been able to do it. And the private sector in Quebec, in Quebec okay. and the private sector is still uh, there and and really filling in the gaps of this public system. So I don't believe that that is the be all end all. I don't believe that that's where we need to go. I think that we need two things. First and foremost, we need uh, accessible daycare. We need spaces for parents. And the great outcome from Quebec that's been studied after their $10 a day daycare went in is that they saw a 16% increase in females in the workforce. That's huge. That is a an awesome outcome. Mm. The wow. other thing that they proved is that it actually paid for itself. So the number of parents that they got into the workforce actually paid for what they were putting out in terms of their their daycare program. So it can be revenue neutral as well and and net neutral on on how much it costs to the taxpayers. But I would would say that the money should follow the child, that it should be needs tested, that needs and means tested so that, you know, we don't have necessarily the surgeon uh, who is getting $10 a day but rather it's the one that needs it the most, right. that's, uh, that that space so sort of is means made, tested. Uh, right, means yeah. tested and made available to them because the second thing it has to be is affordable. Uh, you know, I, as someone who struggled and someone uh, who often, there were years that I spent more on my childcare than I made in a year and that's hard, that's yeah. hard to do. You know, and I've, I've, I've talked to other women who I've said like, 
consider it like going to you know paying for your education to get up into those you know into those roles that will actually allow you to pay for it and and take home some money yeah. but it's very very difficult and right now i mean 40,000 children born every year in bc we've got more that immigrate here we've got 220,000 children ages 2 to 5 right now in bc and we have 120,000 daycare spaces and the NDP have added 6,300 since they took power in 2017, 1,500 a year. That's it? That's it. In the it. entire province? In the entire province. And so you look at that and in the last two years of the BC Liberals in 2015 and 2016, we added almost 12,000 spaces and that was done by a third party auditor. That's added new spaces. We added more in the city of Surrey than they have added in one calendar year. Wow! So it's it's uh, the NDP have. What do you what do you where's where's the what's the basis behind that? Why is that such a drastic difference? I mean, why is there so few new childcare uh, spots being made available to young families? Well, I would say that the NDP have put on this program that make it financially unviable. It's a program that the you know requires basically the the uh, childcare giver to subsidize that that doesn't work that doesn't work in any in any business and so they've layered on all of these all of this bureaucracy mm -hmm. it, it, you know that you can hardly get the spaces uh, licensed and then once you are licensed you have to agree to this subsidy and if you don't agree then you don't get you right. know that 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 uh, license so it's it's, are these stats available somewhere? They are. And you know what? Uh, MLA Kirkpatrick from uh, West Vancouver Capilano. Yeah, Corrine. We've had her Karin. in. Yep. Yeah, Corrine. She did sorry. an awesome job on, uh, in estimates getting those numbers actually articulated. The other statistic that came out of those estimates was that 40, uh, just over 4,000 of them have been delivered in the private sector. So only oh, 2,000 are in the public sector and uh, wow. 4,000 are in the private. And when asked about it, you know, the minister said, well, that's because the private sector has just moved faster and it's an application based system. So you look at that right. and you go, this is this is a system that needs overhaul. This is a system that needs to be uh, to be looked at. This is a system that needs subsidy where where it is necessary. And really, we just need access in other places and other spaces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got some very, uh, uh, I would say, forward thinking in terms of childcare and and in jobs that we need desperately like nursing and uh, our, our healthcare workers and, and frontline workers there uh, why would we not have daycare spaces at all of the hospitals at all of the you know the different clinics that are, are needing that um, and try and retain some of our our staff yeah absolutely way. all right Renee we're near the end and now we're on to your uh, your your wheelhouse which is healthcare. You're the healthcare critic, right, for the BC Liberal Party. The BC Coroner Service reported there were 152 overdose deaths in the month of September of 2021 alone, for a total of 1,534 so far this year. What is your position on the decriminalization of illicit drugs? Other countries have done it, why not Canada? It's a devastating statistic. Every time I hear that statistic, I, you know, I get it, this, this not, in, in in my throat and this just this pit my stomach just I, I I hate I hate what we're doing in society. So I think that decriminalization is one fraction of what needs to be done and it's the absolute last part of what needs to be done. Decriminalization really comes out of Portugal and Dr. Joao Galau who did the entirety of the Portugal project 
but he planned it out. He took about four years to actually create a, a complex care facility for all of those that needed treatment. Then they worked with the justice system, the ER departments, all of the police force to actually figure out what was what was being spent in all of those different areas with respect to the uh, substance use and, and mental health issues. And then they did a holistic plan and for four years funded both of those systems. They also had the universities that were quantifying and measuring each of the different outcomes and there were outcomes set as measurables. The decriminalization aspect came at that moment when they could actually change the system. When a person would be arrested for any drug related crime, that person was given a choice. Would you like to go into treatment or would you like to go into jail? That person then often, and it really? was a very high percentage, chose to go into treatment. Hmm. They had a treatment bed ready for that person, but not just treatment and then sent back out onto the street. It was treatment, it was retraining, it was understanding all of the psychological aspects. They had everything from physiotherapy to psychologists to psychiatrists to occupational therapists to uh, a full breadth of, of care Whether well, they would be defined as wraparound services. 100%. Okay. But then in, even into training opportunities, back into the workforce, government-supported jobs that they could actually maintain and do, but always with housing attached to it in the most that they could uh, that they could uh, to do or afford. When was this rolled out in Portugal, roughly? It, was, it started in the early 2000s. It and was what's the really, result been? Unbelievable. They've actually shifted the other system completely on, gone. I didn't believe it, to be honest. Okay. I was I started studying this when I was in, on the Interior Health Authority Board and I was the chair of the Special Priorities Committee and, and one of those uh, aspects under my mandate was mental health and substance use. So I actually traveled to Portugal and I went and I, I wanted to see firsthand where do your homeless live? I wanna see what's happening. And they look at you a little bit stunned. So I'm in downtown Lisbon and sort of the old, old part of it, not uh, in the bougie uh, tourist areas. And I'm like, no, where are your homeless? So then I had a Portuguese interpreter and, and uh, my spouse who is also born, was raised in Portugal. I'm like, okay, ask, no, these are the people that I want to see. Like, how do we, how do we, where do we interact? Where do we find yeah. them? Yeah, where's, the, where's our downtown east side equivalent? They do not have it. Mm. It does not exist. And the reason is they have given dignity to a whole group of people that right now are living without. Mm -hmm. uh, and our, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, downtown east side of Vancouver, if you're in Kelowna, if you're in Prince George, we have huge amounts of issues yes. all the way throughout our, our, our province, our, on the islands. Let's yep, talk about Victoria. Yeah. Um, and we are not giving them dignity. We're not giving them that support, those choices. And if we look back, it's a failure of the BC Liberals in which we downloaded all of those aspects because of some negativity and, and we threw the, you know, threw all the good ideas out with the bad ones and we should have just reimagined that whole system. You know, I met with a couple of nurses that worked at Riverview and tears streaming down their face. They talked about how it was a community how they, the people that lived there had dignity, how they worked, uh, you know, whether it was gardening and then they got to talk about the carrots that they were serving that, that evening for the dinner, um, or whether it was art and art therapy and, and the beauty that came out of, of these people's living and life experiences. So uh, for me, it was, a, it was a devastation that we need, to, we need to reinvent. So yes, there is a system of care you know, in Portugal today, uh, where they can actually live forever, supported by society. Right. But 
it so you started, use the word reinvent would you more say you would just borrow uh, an already existing i mean why not reinvent the wheel absolutely why would we not yeah, yeah. you know take from that jurisdiction and and, and sure. modify it to to support what we have here and yeah. where we are in british columbia but absolutely don't okay. invent the wheel do something that's tried tested and true and has over you know 20 years basically of data associated with it and um you know dr jo- uh, joao Goulot, he he does a ton of speaking and ted talks etc and uh, and definitely someone uh, that is still around and could help us with that with that modification. Okay, well that's good. I've never heard of this before, so that's the I'm gonna want to check that out. Now, as far as the opioid crisis is concerned today, and I guess you could say over the next the last roughly four years under this BC NDP government, where would you rank them as far as their track records concerned? Horrific. And and why? Like, what have they got wrong? What do they What do they, they seem to be? I mean, when you ever you hear them talking in the press and whatnot it sounds like they're making a lot of progress i have to admit i'm not really on the street level seeing it but then you look at the death statistics and they kind of speak to the the results i was just going to say i think you need to look at the outcomes right and again if we go back all the way full circle to how our money is being spent we're spending a lot of money we're spending 500 million dollars on mental health this year but I think it's number one, too little, too late, and, and not in the right places, and not based on a holistic plan that actually talks about the complex care and treatment that we are requiring right now. Right. So, you know, I, I'll take us back to you know the Portugal project. How, you know how many opioid deaths they, they've had this year? How many? Twenty six. Wow. In a and country, they're, they're way that more is, populated than we are. Exactly, exactly. So you know, wow, in terms of outcomes, I don't care how much money you spent. If you didn't get it, and it's good not like Portugal is like rolling in the money no. dough either. Like if anybody knows about the European financial crisis or debt exactly. crisis that was only less than a decade ago, yeah. Portugal's like their debt rating is like we have a triple A. Well, we used to have a triple A. Now we <laughs> so lost I was gonna it. Say, yeah. Yeah. Um, so oh, that's interesting. Okay. But the other so. thing that they factored in is that it ended up costing less money. So this whole complex care wraparound. So it goes back to your your four yes. pillars. Like yeah. it actually can impact the economy totally. by okay. And end up costing less money. You don't need as much money to run this system as you do all these others. Right. And let's talk about how much of our police force right now. Sixty five percent of their calls are mental health related. Yeah. Police force in the province, not mm-hmm. just Vancouver. Right. Vancouver's is a little bit higher, sixty eight percent. Let's talk about the firefighters, which is a municipal cost as well. Yeah. Forty eight percent of all of their calls are mental health related yeah so we're costing taxpayers so much money uh, for a system that should be provincial wide and a system that should be taking care of those that need to be taken care of one of the Riverview nurses her name is is Rose and I actually um, uh, asked her if I could use the quote but she said we wouldn't treat our Alzheimer's patients this way you wouldn't like I had to do put them in a taxi cab and send them downtown east side and say best of luck to you right yeah I don't want to sound insensitive to Premier Horgan's uh, situation with his cancer diagnosis, but I was a little bit taken back by how he was able to go and get himself, uh, you know, a biopsy and then surgery so quickly. Do you believe that um, if you're a professional hockey player with the Vancouver Canucks, you're the Premier of the province, there is a bit of a different path towards medical treatment than if you're the average, you know, Joe Lunchbox working the construction site? Uh, it depends on if WCB is involved or not, because that's the other aspect of where you get fast-tracked service. Right. If you're on a WCB claim, you get very fast-tracked service. 
So uh, there is, there absolutely is a, a different systems that exist right now. If you happen to know a surgeon and can call them, you know, they, they might get you on their wait list yeah. faster. It's, it's because it's humans, right? We're all, we're all just humans. But the NDB government right now, I, I mean, in, in estimates, Minister Dix and I went head to head on where the $250 million of the surgical renewal program went because I couldn't find the money in the system. And in terms of the surgeries that we actually accomplished after they said that they had reached the same efficiencies of pre-COVID, we did 12,648 less surgeries. So not sure what we spent $250 million, but when pressed, it was all on capacity. Well, I don't know about capacity because we're shutting down ORs left, right, and center because we don't have the nurses for those ORs. You know, I've got a surgeon in my own hometown that's been sitting for three weeks saying, yeah, I've just been canceled. There's just no, we don't have an OR open for me to come in and, and operate in. That's amazing, especially yeah. knowing how many patients yeah. have been put on surgical waste lists. But you know, you mentioned cancer. Our cancer outcomes over the course of the last four years have gotten worse. We have we have slid down onto last place of last place, and um, and and we continue to slide. We shut down the surgical oncology ward of Surrey Memorial Hospital. We're going to wait until 2028 for a new cancer center to be built. Like our resourcing, our staffing, the the amount that oncologists are working right now is absolutely unacceptable and if i could i mean i hope that i'm sounding the alarm bell because when i actually started delving into some of these statistics i was irate you know the number of unattached patients surgical wait times cancer care outcomes we we should be we should be so upset with how we are being treated as canadians and how we're being treated as british columbians so what would you do to fix this, Renee? Like, where, where would you start? What's, what, what would you, you're the head of the BC Liberal Party. You've just been elected premier. What's one of the first things you would do to fix the healthcare system in BC? Well, I've already been amassing a group of individuals who have a tremendous amount of vision for where a healthcare system could go and how it needs to be reinvented. I also took this little task force together and said, okay, what's the number one thing you should, you know, you need to, to really get more patients treated? And I said, is it money? And it was like, no, do not give us more money. And, and I was kind of, I was kind of surprised by the reaction of this one, one surgeon in yeah. particular. And so he gave me this example. He said, there's a UBC study out that was done on two surgeons. One extubated their patients at exactly the medically appropriate time. The other extubated their patients based on convenience. In one calendar year, the, the surgeon that extubated their patient when it was medically necessary saved one hospital, 4.3 million dollars one year wow but it's not just about saving money that surgeon they tracked his outcomes so they tracked they tracked readmission they tracked infection they tracked how fast of a recovery those patients made and on all counts it was superior to the one that did it based on convenience so you tell me if we can change one thing and save 4.3 million dollars you don't think we can find a hundred of those things within sure. the system absolutely yeah. but it's because we're talking to the wrong people we're talking to executives that are at high-level jobs that sit in a right. desk all the time you know who wasn't consulted about the surgical renewal program the doctors doctors you know yeah. who else wasn't the nurses. nurses you know who else wasn't the anesthesiologist you know when they found out 30 minutes before the press release 
So wow. if you want to reinvent the system, you go and you talk to the people that are the, delivering. On the ground, absolutely. doing the delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Good answer. So reinvention and we can do it for less money, but the first thing I would fix is outcomes. It has to be outcomes based. Okay, Renee, to wrap this up, I want to talk about cannabis, okay? Cannabis has been legal in Canada now since 2018, but British Columbians have taken an interpretive stance of what legalization means. What I mean by that is there are people who consume cannabis through the means of a legal regulated store, and then there's everybody else. Um, and if you look at the industry, it's heavily weighted still to the unregulated illegal market of which much of it is financed or helping finance criminal organizations. So what is your position on cannabis today? Where is this provincial government succeeding? Where are they failing when it comes to, to um, the legal versus illegal cannabis markets? Well, I would say the failure is that there is still a black market that's available to British Columbians, that's available to the rest of the world, that's actually being sold to the rest of the world. Uh, that's the failure. If you're not going to enforce a consequence, if you're not going to enforce uh, the negative aspects of, uh, of, of legality, then you are not going to have uh, a market that actually succeeds or thrives. One of the most difficult aspects of the, of the BC market today has been that it's competing and, and oftentimes is spending double and, and being taxed in a way that the black market doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the black market's thriving. Absolutely. Um, so so w if you were, again, premier of the province, you're the head of the BC Liberal Party, what, uh, what steps would you take to try and uh, combat the fact that you've got a lot of illegal uh, activity going on, which is funding criminal activity in the province? Well, I would take a tougher stance on, on the black market. I would, I would enforce the legality uh, or illegality of mm -hmm. that market. I mean, that's that's a real simple aspect. Yeah. You know, you get your task force going on it. You make sure that that is what you look for, you find, and you and you penalize. Because without it, we're we're never going to. There's virtually have no it. enforcement right now. No, yeah. none whatsoever. Yeah. None whatsoever. Yeah. And in doing so, or in in that in that way, our our BC companies will go other places. Yeah. Right. They have to in order Absolutely. to survive. Yeah. So, and you, you know, I said that there was no taxation for the black market. There is, it just goes to criminals rather right. than yeah, to, yeah, uh, exactly. tax, to taxpayers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Renee, last part of this podcast is your opportunity to uh, speak to the listeners. So why don't you let the listeners hear your pitch? and how they might be able to get involved if they like what they hear. Absolutely. We can't go backwards. If we go backwards, we're going to, you know, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes that we've made as well as we will become irrelevant. We can't go sideways because if we go sideways, we're simply, you know, picking probably a safe choice but not one that's going to win. The only way we can go is forward. And in order to go forward, we need to choose a leader that is different, that doesn't look like all the others, that doesn't talk like all the others, and that British Columbians will pay attention to because they're saying something different. I truly believe that I am that candidate. I'm the one that doesn't sound like everyone else. I'm the only one who is a mother. I'm the only one who has the, the wealth of business experience that I actually do. And not just business experience, business success. Because I would argue that not all experience is actually good. 
Some of it can be very bad and some of it you can be, you know, carrying a lot of baggage with. But for me, I have a tremendous amount of success and, uh, and was doing a lot of grassroots work when, uh, you know, when others were not. So I, I, I believe that I am a choice forward and I am a choice where even you were like, well, Renee, you can't really do that. But when I've been told that in the past, all that means is that, you know, they can't see the way forward, but I can. So I am, I am determined and Good. I think that there's a, there's a clear way for us to get to victory for 2024. And if people want to get involved with uh, your campaign or helping you become elected as the BC Liberal leader, what do they do? Well, go on to reneemerryfield.ca, so R-E-N-E-E. M-E-R-R-I-F-I-E-L-D dot C-A and uh, hit click info and it will get to uh, my campaign manager or myself. So uh, absolutely, we love to get you involved. If you want to hear more, if you want to talk to me, if you want to write me an email, if you want to, uh, you know, become a member, if you want to donate, all of that is available to you on there. Well, Ramini Merrifield, I wish you the best of luck on this uh, campaign and becoming the uh, the BC Liberal uh, leader. Um, when is the final decision being made? Is it February? February 5th. Okay. Yeah. You have so. to be a member by December uh, 17th okay. in order to vote. And, you know, uh, just for your listeners, being involved in a leadership race is actually very uh, empowering. You know, there's only going to be, let's say, you know, 20,000 people that vote. Think about how powerful your vote is yeah, and point. what that's worth. So yeah. it's uh, it's definitely a fun time to get involved. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for joining us on Coastal Front. And best of luck to you. And hopefully have you back here again sometime maybe next year. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Renee. 